Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B coming to you this time from Toronto in Ontario in Canada at the home of a very good friend of mine, somebody I've known for close to a decade. He is a renaissance man who has done many, many things in his life and he's going to share an amazing journey with us today, I hope. He is a very avuncular man, he hates me using that term. And he's shaking his head now, bemusement as I use it. But I would say this about him. He is one of only about half a dozen people at the top of organizations who prove that you don't have to be an asshole to run big organizations. So I'm welcoming to a pie with Shawnee B. And we are actually having those. Uh, my good friend, Tony Piggott, welcome. Thank you, Sean. Tony, um, as I said earlier, uh, has had many, many careers. But I want to start with your background and... Where you were brought up. Sure. I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, to a family of construction people. Uh, we actually moved to um, the country when I was five or six. So I grew up in a fairly rural area on a really lovely um, three and a half acres. And you have your brothers and sisters? Yeah, there were seven kids in the family. We were a good, no Irish. wholesome. Oh my God, yeah, no, no, my, very Irish. No, my grandfather uh, and his father. His father actually came in eighteen seventy, I guess. Uh, he was a carpenter, and then he started to build things. And my grandfather, his son, took over the what was left of the business when his dad got ill. So he. He started the business when he was 19, I think, didn't go to college. And he subsequently built it into the largest privately owned construction company in Canada. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you were well-to-do. So, I, yeah, I lived in a bubble called, right. you know, Pickett Construction. It was yeah. quite a well-known operation, certainly in Hamilton. How many of your siblings went into the trade after your father? Well, this is, uh, this is one of the contentious things um, because the company no longer exists and yet it lasted for 100 years. Oh, dear. And, you know, the Japanese say that the, the founder starts something yep. and the second boom, boom, generation <laughs> builds it and the third generation fucks it up. It. <laughs> so there's a certain truth to that pattern when you look at my family. Right. Anyway, it was quite bucolic and we had dogs and stuff to run around. So I could, uh, I have nothing but great things to say about my parents and the life that I led. What uh, was schooling? School was... Very tedious. I don't think the Catholics ran good schools generally. Mm-hmm. And I went to... club here. For no kidding. <laughs> There's yeah, a whole... down a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. There are a couple a of real chapters. Or something. You'll, have to, you'll have to speak to my sister to really get the lowdown on that. <laughs> but I went to a Catholic grade school, and then my older brothers all had to go to a Catholic high school down in Hamilton, which is a very rough and tumble place called Cathedral. And I, I said, what? no, I don't want to go there. I was, uh, I went to a public high school, which was fine. And did you know when you were like in your teens, did you have any idea what you wanted to do? Or I had the strongest sense of what I didn't want to do, right? Um, which was, which was <laughs> involved in the construction business. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like being famous in some small way. And as if you were eight or ten or twelve years old, you got an exaggerated sense of your own importance. So. Right. I, I wanted nothing to do with it, although I worked very grimy jobs from the time I was 15 in construction. Nothing. I worked as a laborer, uh, you know, down in the steel mills and stuff like that, which was 
uh, another way to reinforce my conviction that the last thing I wanted to do was construction. Did you know anything about what else you were going to do? Or no, what? no. But college was no. a goal, was it? Oh, that was a given. In our family, it was, there was no argument whatsoever that people would go to university. I, I was very lucky, I must say, because of, with seven kids in the family, I was number four. So I was in a perfect spot yeah, you were under the because radar. I was completely lost in the shuffle, <laughs> and which made it perfect oh, yeah, for yeah, me. We have him. Yeah, where is he? So I didn't have to worry, as my older brother did, about my old man wondering exactly what he yeah. was going to do for the rest of his life. And then, you know, we had, my God, we had three other children after me, yeah. so my mother and father were going ballistic about right. all of that, so I was, I was lost in the shuffle. So that was quite wonderful, and I could just lead my own kind of jolly life along. But when it came to going to university, being in Ancaster, Hamilton, you went away. So I went to University of Western Ontario. But what I studied was, oddly enough, Russian history. I had a total <laughs> thing about it. Where did that come from? I was born in 1949. So in 1961, the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. occurred. There was such a climate of fear. That was World War Three. It was World War Three was hovering over yeah. everybody, and if you were ten years old, you thought it was going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine the whole skyline turning red and yeah. a flash going through the yeah. you know while you're watching television <laughs> and everything just vaporizing. Yeah. So we were living in that, and you'd have these stupid drills at school hiding under your desk as if yeah. that would help, yeah. and people were digging shelters. It was a, cl a bizarre climate. Anyway, that event took place and scared the bejesus out of everybody, including mm. me. Uh, I just remember so vividly being utterly puzzled about how something that horrible could happen and who was on the other side of this. Mm. It made no sense to me. Yeah. Because you have to realize in those days, when you talk about the, the Iron Curtain, you knew nothing about what was going on in the Soviet Union at yeah. that time. Yeah. It was a black box. And I'm sure the press did a lot to kind of further the mystery. But for an 11-year-old or whatever, it was terrifying and completely bewildering. So from that time, when we thought we were going to get lit up, I was completely and deeply intrigued by the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and Russia. Who are these people? What do they want? Why is this yeah. going on? And I carried that through high school. And when I went to university, that was the thing that I was most interested in. So I spent four years studying everything about Russia. Everything. Um, what did you feel then coming out, having learned all about, about the Soviet Union and Russia? Uh, that I wanted to go there. Uh, and uh, and that was part, a small part of a bigger, a bigger desire, which was to leave Canada. Um, Why did you want to leave? Well, it, it goes back in part to the desire to flee my family and its mm -hmm. and and the and the whole aura that it had and that I exaggerated in in my own mind and having been stuck in that for so long. It's not a deep complaint about it, but it was just something that you wanted to escape. Mm -hmm. And I had never really traveled, so I was very interested in getting the hell out of Dodge and just going. Were you scared? No. No, I was so, so excited. So I spent. Where did you get the money? I spent six months uh, on the uh, on the, the wrong end of a, a sledgehammer uh, working construction. Yeah. I saved up all of three thousand dollars, right? And then fucked off. What age? I was twenty-one, I think. Wow! And where did you go? 
Well, uh, we I started uh, in London, and I spent four months traveling around Europe, as people did in those days. But I just kept going, so I ended up training and hitchhiking. And yeah, all that's yeah. typical, predictable stuff. But it was wonderful, and I visited my sister. She also had gotten out of Dodge. She was a year and a half older than me and a rebel in her own right. And she ended up living in Berlin during the dark days. The wall was still up. And yet, despite all of that, the culture was extraordinary. Edgy, decadent, because I gather it always had been and, and just didn't go away. So I spent a number of weeks with them, and that really made an impression on me. And So I just carried on, spent some time in Greece at the end of the year, but I had determined to go to to Russia and to take the train across Russia, which I had always intended to do. So the Russian trip was, uh, finally I ma- managed to arrange that, and I went across the country, uh, Russia in, the, in February. So what was the real Russia like compared to the Russia that you've been studying for three years or whatever number of years you were in college? Uh, well, it, it was a very poor place. Moscow, I only spent a couple of days in it, and it seemed um, uh, somehow huge and imposing and and dysfunctional because you go into stores and there would be nothing in it. And <laughs> Did you find it was less scary? I was in love with Russia. Right, okay. Yeah, and, you know, I've read all the Russians, and, and this is a culture that I was deeply interested in, so there was not, no fear at all. It was like, wow, I can't wait to get there. And so I spent this ludicrous period of time going across Russia on this shitty train. Did you go to uh, Siberia? It was right across Siberia. The okay. whole thing. It was so you were in the, the Trans-Siberian, the Trans-Siberian Express, right? Right. in yeah. February. It was 40 below zero for the right. whole bloody time. And uh, I was the only Western on the train. So people would talk. They would, they would speak hockey to me. Right. And the further uh, east you went, the poorer it got and the, and the more like a gulag it felt um, but it was a wonderful trip I had so a great did time. you end up at Vladivostok? no they didn't let you go there because it was a military thing it was okay. a place called Habarovsk right. and, and then I got a boat from there and I uh, took it to Yokohama and, and then spent uh, five months in, in Japan and uh, mad as well Crazy, <laughs> completely I crazy. Years in Asia, when I went to Japan, it's like it's, hey, it's like a different planet. It was like sushi didn't exist anywhere outside <laughs> of Japan at the time. First thing raw fish. Yeah. counter is somebody says, "Come eat this." What it did was you fabulous. work there? Well, I I arrived broke. I had right. no money. I got a hundred bucks. So uh, the, what you did then was you taught business people and 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 high school students English. I managed to get a job to do just that and save money up for X number of months and met dozens of friends because the, the Japanese uh, need some kind of formal thing to allow you to meet them. So it was, um, it was an immersion in uh, Japanese culture, which I, I still remember vividly. Yeah. It was great. So you've, you've kind of regrouped in, in uh, Japan and then gone, right, where next? Yeah, and then uh, carried on, took a, took a freighter down to Hong Kong and right. uh, spent time there and then Taiwan and Thailand and went into uh, Laos and Laos had a civil war at the time. So that was an extraordinary kind of experience um, through Malaysia, Indonesia, and I eventually went uh, you're this is now, now a pattern. Sorry. I ended up in, 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 in Australia, oh, in Sydney, broke again. That, that so was what, the extent of my planning. What um, I arrived there in 74, I guess it was. 
and uh, Susan joined me there. Right. Um, Susan is Tony's wife. Yes, now. Anyway, so yes, we lived for a year and a half in Australia. And what was Australia Sydney. like in 1974? I mean, I'm an Australian citizen and I feel there's a huge affinity or similarities between Canada and Australia. Whenever yeah. I come here, I feel, you know, it's very Australian in feel. Well, that, I mean, one of the fascinating things is to find out where the differences lie because um, the the histories are quite parallel, but they're in a, in a way they're different, and the cultures end up surfacing in a different way. Yeah. You know, Canadians are described as the only people in the world who take moderation to an extreme, <laughs> and Australians are kind of the opposite. So it was always fascinating to try and get underneath that and understand why mm. Aussies were different than Canadians, but. I ended up having a kind of ambivalent feeling. I loved the Australians I met. The, the politics of it was just at, at a cusp at that time. Gough Whitlam was in. There, there was still the right, the right side of, of yeah. Australia who didn't want anything to do with immigrants. And, but it was a, f- a fabulous experience. I do know about your Papua New Guinea experience. Yeah. I'd love you to talk about that for a bit and how you ended up there. Sure. My cousin... Uh, was married to a, a, a very, very smart economist who had been hired by the government of Papua New Guinea to help them modernize their economy and move to independence. And we went up to Port Moresby to visit them. And when we were there, we went up to the highlands. Now, if you don't know anything about Papua New Guinea, it is the second largest island in the world. And it has this massive spine of mountains, the Cordillera, which uh, mountains up to 20,000 feet. And in them, uh, these hundreds of pockets of valleys and these rugged valleys, isolated valleys, you've got uh, hundreds of isolated groups who speak their own language. And there are 750 different languages in Papua New Guinea. Many of whom do not know the West exists. They didn't. Right. They're they're, they're tribes people in, in a jungle. Yeah. Anyway, so we ended up going up to the highlands when we arrived in this Neolithic culture and these extraordinary people and the Highlanders are as rugged and tough and different uh, that you can find. So we decided that we would be nuts to not stay. So we ended up twisting ourselves in a knot and got ourselves jobs in a Catholic mission in a more remote part of the Highlands called the Tari Basin. You land on a gravel strip and you're surrounded by volcanoes in this massive valley at five or 6,000 feet. And there's a, a, quote, high school run by the Catholics that's seven miles out of town on a, <laughs> on a, a shitty-ass mud track that you go in your, you know, your four-by-four and you get out to. And there is this idyllic campus with thatched uh, roofs and the Catholics because they were the richest, would actually host all of the other denominations that had missions in the valley. And the valley was one of the last places in New Guinea that had contact between white, uh, you know, the kind of Westerners and and the Papua New Guineans. So you had all these funky fundamentalist sects (laughs) that carved up the valley and they were the seventh, you know, the Asia Pacific day, Seventh Day Adventists. You had Asia Pacific so, locked up Presbyterians. Yeah, 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 they were, and it was oh, and so they would send their kids out of bush school. The best kids would go to the high school, and they would all come in there and stay in their little huts 
and every morning the missionaries from the different places would come in and they would you'd hear a cacophony of singing because each of them would have their own little drills religious drills that they would take them through and then they were released and everybody got back to normal just just did teaching a lot lot of my listeners are quite young because part of the the idea of the podcast is maybe younger people getting a view from a bit of wisdom from from us oldies about what our life was like but can you explain this concept of missions and why the churches were out there because today they can hardly keep their own flock in in order or their own management in order what was the trade-off there the kind of intensity of the mission, let's call it that, varied quite a bit. Some of the fundamentalists who believed that it was required that everybody on the planet could read the Bible. So the extreme versions of all of this were sects, usually American, that would go into the most remote places in this country with 750 languages. They would find their way into these places, they would learn the language, they would translate the Bible into that language, they would teach that to those people, and that was a process that they believed was essential for the basically the enlightenment and the, and the saving of those people. So there were variations less severe than that, but all more or less on the same kind of moral high ground. People needed to be saved. They needed to be exposed to the Word of God through the mm. Bible and all this crap. I get that bit, but... If you and I are in charge of a tribe and we go, these guys are taking the piss, let's just pretend that we're interested so we get the blankets and the food and uh, whatever else they've got. Was there, was there a yep. kind of a, a skepticism and a sarcasm evident from some of these Total, people? Totally, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but you couldn't, you couldn't safeguard everybody. So mm. somebody was, some young people would be pulled in even more deeply. Mm. But uh, to tell you how, di- how diabolical it was, everybody manipulated the people in, in that valley on the basis of the power of technology. No, the power of God, Tony. I know, but it was man- it was manifest through things like electric lights God. and cars. And you you want to know how you know what kind of mojo we've got going? Look at this. This is yeah. a this is a vehicle that you can get in. Or even the, even the priests would have fun flicking lights and saying you know yeah. little miracles. But it, it was it was awful. But you, the point is that these people were they were not stupid, and they would go along with it to a large degree. But a lot of them ended up basically abandoning much of what they believed in and and these kids would end up distanced from their cultures Mm. going to towns not having anything to do so i have no time for fundamentalist missionaries Mm. i have more time for catholic missionaries because they always had a balanced view and they were trying to train kids to to have skills and to cope with all of this and i certainly in the teaching i did a lot of it was to learn about their culture and teach back to them that their culture was of equal value, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was a mind-boggling and sobering experience but for me. Talk, talk me through the, you know, you've made this mental decision to go there and you're in the middle of bloody nowhere with prehistoric, in many cases, tribes, people. But like, you know, you're going to sleep in a what a tent with a with a mosquito net every night for months and months and months yeah. with your girlfriend I mean when at what point do you go we are out of our fucking minds doing this well the only thing that chased us away uh, was that the people that we knew in Port Moresby doing the economic plan for the new country 
uh, David Beatty sent reports up that they had done, they'd done research in the country to discover that kids who were being taught in these schools, that 70% of them would never find a job. Great. Yeah. So here we were having this experience of a lifetime. (laughs) It's great for me and Susan. But lo and behold, we're teaching these kids to abandon their culture mm. and uh, and actually giving them nowhere to move as new kind of quasi-modernized Papua New Guineans. And that was disgusting. So we resigned and, and left earlier than we thought. We were only there for a year and a half. We were going to stay longer. Um, but that was, that was really depressing. And in fact, when you look at what's happened in Papua New Guinea, there's been so much disruption, and a lot of it has to do with the, these very dynamics. That kids get some education, they, they see what else is possible, there's actually no way of getting a job and making money, so they leave their rural villages and whatnot, and they go into towns, and all sorts of shit happens. So they've had... So is the, is the lesson the best thing to do with prehistoric tribes is to leave them be? I think so. I think that the idea of wading in there the way we did was just utterly irresponsible. If there isn't a plan and an understanding of how this will evolve in a way that integrates what they have now with with a degree of modernity, because you can't deny people the chance to have to save their children or to, sure. you know, I mean, they're, they're, those fundamental things. But it's the idea of being so swept up in your own superiority that you, mm-hmm. you impose an education on them and, and have not done anything um, to actually look at what the repercussions are. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, the irony is that we're... we're, we're I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, a moral atheist, and I've talked about this a bit on podcasts, but, yeah, we're going in preaching a fairy tale to people who believe in fairy tales, but they're different fairy tales. You know, they believe in the sun and the moon and the stars or whatever they believe in. And we're going, no, oh, no, we've got the right one here, actually. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Prepo- equally preposterous, actually, if you put them side by side. They're both preposterous. Both preposterous. Yeah. And, and, and that's, uh, honestly, one of the most profound things that uh, I've been lucky enough to experience was the fact that my culture and my belief system, which was so rigid when I went in there, yeah. got blowed up real good. Yeah, yeah, I bet. It was just like, are you kidding? Did you kidding? get disillusioned? I got uh, um, basically sobered up about about our own belief system, just not not just religion, but the whole belief in the superiority of our culture and our way of life, mm-hmm. our worldview. That's what we confronted, that there were other incredibly rich and distinct points of view that were equally valid, totally different, yeah. and that these people weren't going to abandon what they were thinking to absorb what I was all about. Yeah. It's probably something you should learn a lot earlier, but that's when it... But most people me. don't learn at all. No, and and that that lesson has lived has stayed with me forever. So the two of you made a decision one night. We're gonna we're getting out. We had to go. Yeah. And what did you do then? We went to, to Port Moresby um, with to our friends, and uh, we got married in their house there. Did you? I never knew that. Yeah, we got married, married in Port you. Moresby. Um, the, one, the of the mission, act- one of the missionary priests. No. <laughs> Uh, the acting district commissioner for Port oh, Moresby, okay. Okay, who's, right. who was an Aussie, who showed up in short pants and he was loaded at four right. thirty in the afternoon. Brilliant. Yeah, it was great. Uh, so we did that, and then we traveled uh, through the Indonesian archipelago for months, and then up through Malaysia and back into Japan, and did you know did some more traveling, and then get, got home. You came home four years after you went away. Yeah. 
what, what did your family say when you arrived? Oh, he's back, the one that we, the middle. <laughs> I told we didn't have him. <laughs> That's right. Ah, I wondered I where you were. Middle child. Oh, well, it was uh, for for us, and I can't speak for Susan for sure, but I think she feels this way. It's hard for me to adjust to coming back sure. because there is a certain complacence to the way life would carry yeah. on here. Even the size of people yeah. struck us as absurd. <laughs> Everyone was huge. <laughs> We've been living an Asian experience yeah. for a long time. Yeah. But, uh, no, I think we had nothing but a very, very warm welcome from everybody. And they, they just said, what are you going to do Did you have any now? idea what you were going to do? I wanted to continue to avoid work, <laughs> you know, of the kind of traditional kind. I, I've, I have told my kids... Uh, that I took early retirement in my 20s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, mine was in the 20s. I literally, yeah, I, I spent that. my entire 20s yeah. traveling, doing different jobs. Uh, when I got back, I, we just had to make some money. So I worked as a cab driver, I worked in a bar, I wrote a novel, I did, you know, yeah, you know, all sorts of stuff. Was the decision when you were coming home, the two of you, that we will go home and we will put down some roots and have children? Was that mm-hmm. kind of part of the thing or that just happened? I think when we got back, we were so kind of wondering what to do that uh, planning in that formal way d- didn't occur. <laughs> By the time we hit our thirties, oh, maybe yeah, maybe it's time to have kids. But for the f- those first few years, it was like, how how do we actually move forward here? So Susan went to grad school, and I went into advertising. Mm. Yeah, I did think that I had a business kind of. DNA in me, mm-hmm. so I I thought I I am going to work. I do want to get into business rather than hand to mouth stuff, and I thought that uh, oddly enough, the experiences that I'd had added up for me to actually like advertising. I know that sounds bizarre. Mm-hmm. But you but, had a worldview and you had world stories and you had you well, it was, and I also spent a fair bit of time as a teacher. There was a combination yeah. of things that made it uh, um, reasonable to me. Curiosity about cultures, teaching, good communication mm. skills, an interest in ideas, and a need to make some money. Mm. <laughs> so where did you start? I got a job at J. Walter Thompson. Ah, okay. So all yeah. that time. It, and it, it was in it came down, Yeah. Oh, so I didn't realize you were there that long. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it was ridiculous. You were there 30 years nearly. Yeah, uh, yes. How does someone who's been so, you know, footloose and, and fancy free end up landing a job and spending 30 years there? I don't know. I still think about it, actually. I believe, though, that it's partly because advertising is a pretty interesting business. Mm. And it has a tremendous variety. Thank God the people in it are as eclectic and surprising and bright mm. as they can be. Uh, anyway, that's what I told myself. For those listening, JWT is J. Walter Thompson, which is one of the oldest ad agencies in the world. Tony went from being that junior account person to um, CEO and eventually chairman. So he ended up running the business many years later. Tell me a little bit of how your life looks back in that time. Well, uh, I, it was a an opportunity every day or every year to try something different, to um, have different challenges and whatnot. And the reason I stuck with one company so long is that it gave me a platform to try new things. Mm, you said that to me. And I, I've always 
wanted to find ways where uh, marketing, advertising, and ideas could be applied to doing something more than selling razor blades. Uh, you know that that whole saw. So early on in in my time, I would volunteer and do a lot of work for different social campaigns, mm. and that was always uh, something that kept me going. But the truth is too that I loved the the work that we did. It was yeah. fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was very interesting, and it really was a, a kind of commercial anthropology that was going on all the time. The worst thing that can happen to somebody is that you're dead in the job and there's nothing mm. challenging or interesting and you're not learning. But, mm. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that week to week, the ad business can be really very, very interesting indeed. But the other dimension to it is that um, the advantage of a large company is that it's a, a warehouse of possibilities, mm. which eventually, for me, stretched out around the world, where you'd have networks, as you've experienced, Sean, you've got... Friends, networks, possibilities. You're able to go to Shanghai and, and start to do some business with people on a completely different plateau. It seemed to me during the course of my career that that those things that seemed in my earlier times of studying Russian and working in New Guinea and traveling all the time, those things kicked in more and more and more yeah. the longer I stayed in the business. Brilliant. It was it was very interesting, and in that they totally informed. Uh, the things that I did eventually around social change and the whole area of the ethos social change business that I got going. I, f I found an article in the um, Wall Street Journal about this uh, JWT offshoot, which was headed by Tony globally called Ethos, which was, uh, I don't think it is anymore, but it was Tony's attempt to try and tell me what it was ethic do ethical work for ethical products or something right I would call it a social change practice and I know that sounds rather generalized but it was important not to look at it as charity work but rather that that uh, the world w uh, was clearly in need of change whether that's around climate change or issues of poverty or one thing or another and that that marketplace of social change Uh, had many players, mm. and those players included companies, mm. but they also included not-for-profits and charities and whatnot. Yeah. So marketing had a profound role to play, where those issues could go backwards or forwards, depending on how smart people were, in engaging consumers or employees or the mm. public on issues of importance. So what happened then was Tony uh, retired out of JWT, and then I think... That was the perfect storm. You had Ethos advertising for 30 years, your early experience working in many of the remote countries of the world, seeing artisans in place, and that's where we kind of started working mm -hmm. a lot together, which was when the formation of what you're still working on today, which is Brand Trade. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to set up Brand Trade and what it is. Sure. Well, it, it goes back 10 years. Uh, a friend of mine, He likes to say that when I went into advertising, he went into Haiti. <laughs> and between us, we kept a dialogue going for the better part of 20 years when he lived down there about the role that business and brands and, and big business could play in issues like poverty. Because he was literally living on the coalface of the whole thing. So when he moved back, we sat down over the course of two or three months, talked this whole thing through and started a business, which was originally called Brand Aid Project. The principles of which were to look at small producers at the bottom of the pyramid, realizing that they were making things of great value but weren't being valued for those things, 
And if you applied marketing, branding, technology, and design to what they were doing, you could tap into a massive market worldwide. Our business model was to uh, actually develop new brands out of these places, and we started in Haiti. It was a romantic idea, uh, but we found a way of applying the principles by branding two groups in Haiti pre-earthquake um, who made beautiful things with their hands. So Tony was doing this uh, brand trade thing and I worked together with him and this guy who talks about Cam Broman. Tell me where that has evolved to and where it is today because I know you've got some, some big news. We've been trying different approaches to this whole idea of creating new brands from these places, positioning our company in different ways. And the Haiti project actually ended up um, being funded by the Canadian government because they saw microeconomic uh, development as an important part of the way you help a country like Haiti. Mm -hmm. And here are these guys from the magic world of advertising who are able to actually uh, co-create products and create brands and get them into marketplace where, wow, that could actually create some sustained business for those small producers. So we ended up, after the earthquake, we came to the attention of the Canadian government got a contract. So that demonstrated to us that part of our business model could be basically getting hired by governments to do this kind of development work, mm-hmm. creating new brands from poor countries, basically, and, and new channels to market and so on. So it's worth segueing just to give an example to those listening about what we're talking about. So in Haiti, there's hardly any... Haiti used to be where Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor used to hold a, and it was owned by the French. And it is now... Uh, all the great French furniture from the 1700s and 1800s was all using Haiti wood and all the trees were used for that. And it's like fucked up. But there are guys who take, um, for example, oil drums and they strip it down and they temper it in the fire and they... They chisel it down some, you know, little poor alleyway and they make beautiful hand carving metal pieces and make mirrors and, 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 and beautiful artwork out of it. The problem, of course, is there's no tourism in Haiti. So they're making <laughs> tourist gigaws for the lack of tourism. And they're not gigaws, they're, they're, they're more artistic than that. So you have artisans <clears throat> who basically live in a shack, make these beautiful things. And Tony's outfit has come along, given them a brand name made a website for them, made brochures for them, and that was the genesis of, of Brand uh, Aid Project, which today now is, is, is seven years or eight years in existence and is now moving to other countries around the world. Tell me about where you are right now. Okay. Following Haiti, we went and uh, got a uh, project with the government of Peru that was co-funded by the Canadian government. The challenge we put to them is that the Peru's cultural economy is extraordinary, but nobody would know about it. So we uh, propose to develop collections and four new brands out of uh, representative regions of the country and bring them to market as a way to demonstrate that the value of your uh, grassroots economy, your cultural economy, is way greater than people know. And uh, to really use that as a way of promoting Peru, but also stimulating the small business sector in the country. So we are 20 months into that project. We've created four brands. We're now selling them to different leading retailers. 
We got agencies to create the branding um, identities, and and they are wonderful. And they start to extract the genuine value that these producers who are making, for example, beautiful textiles with alpaca or wool, or grass weavings of, of beautiful things you'd want in your home. These are now brands that can that can compete globally mm. among other designer type brands. So we've done that, and but the experience of working with big retail has taught us that the small business sector in the world, which is massive, is a complete misfit with big retail. It's crushed. Crushed. There is no room in big retail for small producers Mm -hmm. because they are out to make money. Their business model is about mass production. And so they will dabble with people like Brand Trade and they'll put little things in it, Selfridges or Macy's, or Hudson Bay, which we have done. But in terms of a scalable, sustainable idea, it's a non-starter. So we are now in the throes of developing a web platform, which will be the proper showcase for micro, small, and medium-sized businesses Mm -hmm. anywhere in the world, and to put them in touch with small retailers and people who um, are in the direct selling business Uh, to create a proper channel to market. This issue hasn't been properly revealed, the kind of gap that exists between affluent and the rest is a persistent and growing problem, the gap. And you then have to look at ways whereby that can be corrected. And the fact of the matter is that 70% of the world's economy is based on small businesses, businesses of three people to 300. And that's more true in poorer countries, such as Haiti or Peru or even Colombia, a very sophisticated place, but it's 60, 70% small business. And those producers um, have a terrible time getting to market in the right way. So the brand trade experience that I've had and that we've had with Sean and with Cam and others has been uh, one where we have come to grips with these harsh realities Mm and have really wanted to tackle what the actual sustainable solution would be. Mm-hmm. And that is to create a market channel that is right-sized, that matches small producers with small purchasers, bis- purchasers or yeah. resellers. And the good news is that because platforms like Airbnb and so on have been so explosive, that we can steal or borrow a lot of these proven platforms or systems and, uh, and create a way for um, micro-trade, is what we call it, to happen between small producer in Peru and a, and a small reseller in Seattle or Vancouver or whatever. Given your worldly experience, what, what is your take on the world right now? Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic or how do you, how do you view it? Uh, yikes. Um, uh, politically, it stinks uh, right now because um, there is a circle of wagons mentality going on in most quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a cause for pessimism, and it's scary if that's allowed to, to become uh, more intensified. Mm-hmm. The, the belief that um, we have to defend our, uh, uh, our patch and contrast that to the kind of liberal open borders mentality that exists in Canada, for example, which is an anomaly today. So politically speaking, it's, it is scary. 
Why I'm, is America so fucked up and Canada not so fucked up? Because they're right beside each other. Yeah. Well, uh, they're the, the you know as the Irish said, we live on the edge of empire. Mm. Um, so we we know America better than Americans know America, yeah. to be honest. Okay. And uh, the the reality is that the values of the two cultures and, and countries have been diverging for the past decade. And what I mean by that is attitudes to women, attitudes toward gays, attitudes toward uh, immigrants, all of these things have become more positive in Canada while they've been going south, south. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in the U.S. So our ethos as a country is much more collective. We have a history of being a social democracy, yeah. and we've, we've always built our country on the basis of kind of uh, collaboration with authorities as things as the West has developed or what have you. So our, our ethos and our history are, are radically different. And I think that's becoming evident as America is going sideways. Why is the states going the way it is? I, be, I did a lot of work in the sustainable development field during yeah. the ethos days. And I looked very closely at why Americans were so steadfast in their belief of the American dream because it was persisting in the yeah. in the mid-2000s when we were looking at it closely. Why are people not becoming more responsible and understanding? Yeah. It's because so many people in the United States have deep, embraced deeply this belief that I can make it. Mm. That's falling apart. And the problem and, with that word, that sentence is I, right? Yeah, that's, yes, exactly. Yeah. America's let a lot of people down and... And so it is a moment for leadership there, which is going to take things one way or the other. And that's what's scary. Yeah. So, I, 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 since I haven't been here in two and a half years, and we haven't weirdly met since in that time, but you've been double grandparented since then. What would you say to your two granddaughters? What advice would you give them, given that great story you just told on the podcast? Ooh. Yeah. Don't take yourself seriously, but take your life seriously. <laughs> That'd you be one. That. <laughs> huh? I always, I've always taken my okay, life seriously. Okay. I, I think. But you took a lot of chances. And yes. You, you no. Exactly. The... And and I think that's a good point. You you do have to be prepared to take risks, meaning do things that you feel you need to or want to, uh, with not really knowing what the outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's essential for people the things that I would ask them to, to consider are, are much more pragmatic too like learn some languages and keep your minds open to the world the pressure I put on my kids was very limited but one thing that they were obliged to do was get the hell out of Canada yeah. go and be an immigrant somewhere work in another place and, uh, and I think that that will you know, kind of give you the um, scar tissue that, that will do you uh, good in the end Tony Piggott, as ever, a pleasure to sit down and have a chat with you. I learned an awful lot of things about you that I didn't <laughs> know when I told you that was going to happen. Yeah. The best of luck with Brand Trade. I'll put a link on the podcast blurb for anyone listening who wants to find out more about it. It's been a pleasure having a pint with you, and I hope to see you again soon. Sean, that was fun. Take care. All right. <laughs>